This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. The indoor mask mandate in California disappears at midnight. That is, unless you're in L.A., or Santa Clara counties. Disneyland says no more masks. The Coachella and Stagecoach festivals also say no masks needed. So why are requirements still in place for the kids in the schools? And if you're feeling unsure about the world as the pandemic seems to be winding down, we'll talk about the psychology of dealing with and accepting a COVID-changed world. We start with mask mandates. Should people just ditch their masks now, or should they hold on for a bit longer. Dr. Dean Blumberg is a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health. I'm going to wear a mask. Um, They work well, and I'm comfortable wearing them, and I don't want to get COVID, so I still think it's prudent for individuals to make up their own minds and decide to wear masks if they want to be, be protected. So the state, places like Disneyland, acting in too much haste? You know, the beauty of the current situation we're in now is that previously it was more of a public health issue in terms of people getting sick and overwhelming hospitals and healthcare resources. And now with this Omicron surge decreasing, we're at about one sixth the peak of the Omicron surge right now. Um, we don't have those concerns, and people can take responsibility now for their own health by um, choosing, for example, to use an N95 mask. It's since they're more widely available, those do an excellent job of protecting. Yeah, so let's talk to those people for a second who are still going to be super concerned, especially, uh, you know, come tomorrow or the next couple of days when they go somewhere and they look around and there's going to be a whole bunch of people not wearing masks. So need they be fearful if they've got their N95 or KN95 strapped to their face and they're in the supermarket or they're in the elevator with unmasked people? I mean, that's a lot of protection. This is almost as good as it gets, what you're breathing through. Yeah, so the CDC just released a study last week that showed people who are wearing the N95s or KN95s had 83% decreased risk of getting infected. Now, that's not the 95% that you would expect, but the 95% would be people who are fit tested and are wearing them properly. So 83% is still pretty good. I know that when I wear it, you know, I've been fit tested. I know exactly how to wear it. I do a seal check to make sure that the fit is good. I don't have facial hair, which can interfere with the N95 protection. Um, So I do expect at least 95% protection. So I feel very comfortable being around other people. In fact, you know, with the N95, as part of my job, I go and see patients with COVID. I go into the room. So so I know that there's a risk from those patients. So I feel very comfortable wearing an N95. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're in a, a clearly a an environment where you're exposed to very large uh, viral loads, right? Uh, people who are sick and who are coughing and sneezing maybe all over you. For the average uh, person, a chance encounter perhaps in an elevator or uh, on an airplane, if they're wearing even a KN95 that's not perfectly fitted and maybe they don't really know how to wear it, but it's covering their mouth and nose, that's still, as you mentioned, that's still pretty good, right? Yeah, they're still probably going to get at least 80% reduction. And then if they're fully vaccinated and boosted, that'll uh, provide additional protection. And if they're around people who aren't highly contagious, such as those who are appear well, and hopefully most people in public don't have fevers and aren't coughing up a storm, well, you're, you'll take a wide berth of them, right? 
So for most of those encounters, you have a low risk. And plus, many of these encounters are very brief, right? You're walking by somebody or, or, or just by them with, with them for less than a minute or so. So those are going to be relatively low risk encounters. So we're down to risk assessment time again, right? And I guess in a much better place than we were months ago, but we've still got different groups of people who are doing totally different things. There's people who've been eating in restaurants and going to bars or going to sports games or concerts pretty much the whole time. And then there's still people who haven't gone to dine inside in months and months and months. So what do you say to that second group? I mean, do what you're comfortable with, obviously, but you should probably get out at least at some point. Things are a little yeah. bit better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people need to take it, you know, as the situation occurs. So I can tell you personally that my wife and I, we went out to dinner during um, the fall. But then when Omicron came, I felt very uncomfortable. And in fact, we canceled our Valentine's Day dinner reservations because we just weren't comfortable being inside unmasked for a prolonged period of time. So it just depends. We're still having significant activity, um, even though we are down from the Omicron surge. But I would think within the next month or two, we're going to get back to pre-surge levels and people can, can reassess the situation and then be out and about more. Yeah, yeah. It, do you expect to be comfortable relatively soon? Maybe give it a month or further into spring. I mean, is that when you're eating inside? Yeah, the model suggests that we're going to be below what we were at the Delta surge in July and August. We're going to be below that in about a month or so. And I think once we're below that, I, that'll be my signal that I'll be more comfortable um, being more relaxed. And right now, you know, being with friends and family, if they're fully vaccinated, you know, it, and, and they're comfortable not being masked in small groups, you know, that's the kind of people that I've been socializing with. So do you already know the restaurant you're going to head to? <laughs> I know. He's got reservations yeah. a month from now. He's like, I'm ready yeah, to go, man. I, I, I don't, but I'll, I'll tell you who's in charge of that. I'll ask my wife. <laughs> okay. Good answer. Um, you know, we got to ask because the, the, the Super Bowl was here and we saw a whole bunch of maskless people. What do you think people made of that watching that on TV? Because now we've got two counties that are still going to be doing masks and we had, you know, tens of thousands of people without them. And in terms of people thinking, you know what? I'm just going to take this thing off and never put it back on because look at all these people. Yeah, that was interesting to watch. I mean, technically, you're you're indoors at the stadium, right? But it's a huge volume of air there. And so really, the, the risk isn't the same as if you're indoors in a smaller venue, such as a somebody's living room and all. So there's the, the air exchange is high. The um, air volume is large. And so I think the risk of infection is basically due to people who you're immediately next to, the people you're sitting next to. So I'm hoping that there's not a bump related to people going to the Super Bowl and being largely unmasked, but it, it was interesting to look at that. I am curious because there are uh, some countries in, in Western Europe that are starting to think very seriously about dropping the so-called you know vaccine passport that you don't need to to perhaps prove. I think the UK, in fact, uh, you won't have to prove that you're vaccinated to go into a restaurant. When do we get to that point here? You know, if you have a large proportion of the population that's at least partially immune from prior vaccination or infection, 
then if you do get those breakthrough infections, they're going to be relatively mild and they're not likely going to result in hospitalization or death. That's when you can do that because we just don't want to see what we saw earlier in the pandemic where hospitals and healthcare systems were overwhelmed with admissions in New York City and in India and Iran. Um, these areas just you know, couldn't, couldn't take care of patients and people died because of that. We can't have that. But if we have enough partial immunity, that's when you can stop with the mandates for the vaccine passports. And the, similarly with the masks where people can take responsibility for their own health. Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist, UC Davis Health. Doctor, thanks. We've often talked about the challenges of navigating different periods of this pandemic over the last two years. There was the fear and uncertainty at the start of all this in early 2020. There was the sense of hope and optimism as vaccines started to roll out in spring of 2021, only to be dashed by two more waves of infections. And now as we reach the point uh, that could be a transition out of the pandemic, there's an entirely different set of anxieties and unknowns. Is it safe to start gathering in large groups again? Should I keep my mask on even as the mandates drop off? If you've been feeling depressed or uninspired as we begin really the third year of uh, the official pandemic, our partners at KYW News Radio in Philadelphia took a closer look at this. Anchor Carol McKenzie talks with University of Pennsylvania psychologist Dr. Melissa Hunt. What is wrong with us? Why are so many of us just feeling unmotivated, just blah? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I will admit it, that I've experienced some of that myself over the last year and a half or so. So the first thing I want to do is distinguish between two kinds of feelings that can lead to that blah feeling. One is burnout and the other is depression. And here's a very simple way of knowing the difference. Burnout kind of results in, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this thing that I'm required to do, whether it's another Zoom meeting or, you know, trying to slog into work or, you know, being at work with only half staff or being at work and being overwhelmed. Burnout is really oftentimes related to specific burdens and challenges and tasks that could be, you know, part of your paid employment or could just be part of sort of life at large. Depression is a little bit more than that. Depression often leads to something called anhedonia. That's the technical name for the symptom. And what anhedonia means is that things just aren't giving you pleasure. You just don't feel motivated. But often it's that you don't feel motivated to do anything. Even things that would normally give you pleasure, like listening to a great song or watching a really fun movie or hanging out with friends and family or eating a great meal, you know, the meal just tastes like sawdust. Just nothing interests you or gives you pleasure or motivates you. And it's a really important difference because oftentimes the solution to burnout is to take a break. <laughs> it, possibly can. It's to look at, all right, how many balls do I have in the air? Can I put a few of them down, right? And the red flags for burnout tend to be things like dropping the ball on something, you know, 
double booking yourself or forgetting an important meeting or an appointment or making a mistake at work or just even being more physically clumsy or more accident prone or more short tempered. All of those things are kind of red flags for burnout. And generally speaking, the solution is if you possibly can, find a way to get some help, find a way to take a break, find a way to put some of those balls and responsibilities down. With depression, depression is really kind of a whole body, whole brain phenomenon. And most people think of depression as feeling sad. And that can be one of the symptoms of depression, but it actually doesn't need to be. You can get a diagnosis of depression without feeling sad. If you're feeling really, really unmotivated and disconnected and just not getting pleasure from things, and you have an array of a few other symptoms. So maybe you're having a lot of difficulty sleeping, particularly not just having trouble getting to sleep, Lots of things can cause that too much caffeine, a little bit of anxiety, ruminating about a you know meeting you had at work today or something stressful that's coming up tomorrow. But sleep problems where you wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep or where you wake up early in the morning and you're still tired, but you can't get back to sleep. Those are real red flags. Overarching fatigue, difficulty concentrating feeling like you're not a worthwhile human being, really questioning your worth. And, you know, obviously at its worst and most severe, actually thinking that, you know, maybe it would be easier if you just weren't here. Mm -hmm. So if anyone is experiencing that kind of collection of symptoms, then I really do suggest getting in touch with your doctor. Lots of doctors have very effective brief screening tools that they can do with you. And there are lots and lots of really, really effective treatments for depression, including both cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, and various medications. So if someone's really feeling a pervasive feeling of anhedonia and they just don't want to do anything and nothing is giving them pleasure, then I do suggest seeking professional help. So we're all just collectively depressed. I think a lot of us are burned out. I think a lot of us are burned out. The pandemic has done several things simultaneously for lots of different people. And obviously this is somewhat variable across the socioeconomic spectrum and it's variable across the kind of employment that you have. So folks who are still having to go into work, essential workers, healthcare workers, all of the folks who keep society running, who collect the trash and deliver the groceries, all those folks are feeling really kind of overwhelmed by the burdens of showing up every day. And they've been in situations where they've had to put themselves at physical risk to help the rest of us manage and get by. Those of us who are in more white collar jobs where we can work remotely, we can work from home, you know, may have been in less physical risk but we've also lost a lot of the things that make our jobs and our social lives enjoyable and fun, right? It's really hard to not be around your friends, to not be around your coworkers, just to have a a cons for much of the pandemic, particularly before vaccines became widely available, just feeling like every time you went to the grocery store, you were kind of taking your life in your hands. That wears on you, that's exhausting. And there are certainly lots of other generations who have had to cope with dissimilar specific challenges, but similar kinds of situations. You know, I think about 
people in London during the Blitz in World War II. I mean, you know, it was dangerous to just go outside and go to the supermarket. And unfortunately, there are lots of parts of the world where that's still true that have nothing to do with the pandemic. So certainly those kinds of stressors and challenges can take a toll on people's resilience, on their energy. So there have both been extra burdens and strains, especially for people who have young kids at home, schools were closed. I am so grateful that my youngest is now 18. <laughs> it's really <laughs> self-directed that I didn't have to deal with that. So what we've dealt with is both an increase in the stressors and the challenges and the burdens, while at the same time, we've all had a decrease in the opportunities for pleasure and joy and mastery and social support, all those things we used to take for granted. And that's been hard on a lot of people. Well, and the thing is, you know, when you talk about stress and anxiety, they're different, but particularly with anxiety, a lot of times, right, that's from within or things we might be afraid of in the future. But we're facing, this is a real threat. I mean, this is not mm -hmm. some imaginary enemy. This is year two. I mean, Everybody's mm -hmm. just exhausted. But I, I'm thinking when you talk about kind of healing and moving on, how do you do that when we're still in it? You know, we're still facing this. So you've made what I think is a really important distinction between what are the threats and stressors and challenges that are just out there in the world that are real versus what's happening in our own head. How are we thinking about things? And I think it's really important to highlight that difference because we're in a very, very different phase of the pandemic now. If you've gotten yourself vaccinated, and especially if you've gotten yourself boosted, the risks of catching COVID are really very, 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 very low. That is to say, you're probably still going to catch it. At this point, I think we have to kind of come to a place of acceptance that most people are going to get COVID, even if they're vaccinated and boosted. But if you're vaccinated and boosted, the chances that you will have anything like a terribly serious illness are vanishingly low. So lots and lots of people are getting COVID, but if you're vaccinated and boosted, it's not dangerous. And that's where we need to begin to shift our thinking. So lots of folks who really hunkered down and isolated and said, I am willing to give up seeing people and going to restaurants and going to shows, and I just really want to stay safe. That might have made sense in March of 2020 or May of 2020. It doesn't really make sense anymore. And that's where we have to start working on those internal thought processes and not catastrophize and not distort and let go of some of the fear that may very well have been appropriate a year and a half ago. But again, if you're vaccinated and boosted, you really don't have to be afraid of anymore. We end today's Coronavirus Daily with a story about COVID vaccines in pregnant women and some added benefits for their unborn children. New research from the CDC shows that infants whose mothers received two doses of a messenger RNA vaccine, that would be Pfizer or Moderna during pregnancy, are less likely to be admitted to the hospital for COVID-19 in the first six months of life. And the later in a pregnancy that an expecting mother is vaccinated, the better the immune protections for infants. It's the first real-world evidence that a vaccinated pregnant mom is likely passing along COVID antibodies to her child. 
Not entirely unexpected, prior research on other diseases has suggested women who are vaccinated against other viruses during pregnancy, they can pass the antibodies. But the CDC warns more research is needed to determine the best point in a pregnancy for expecting moms to get their vaccines and whether a booster shot might provide even better protection. You can find this Odyssey original and others at the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.